Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Fiona, welcome to the Australian Investors Podcast. Thanks, Owen. Glad to be here. We're just chatting off air and I thought we'd just better hit record because otherwise all this gold will be lost into the ether forever. So here we are. We're going to be talking about governance. We're going to be talking about companies on the ASX, maybe even some companies broadly speaking, and how things like remuneration plays into governance, plays into ESG, plays into good quality corporate stewardship, if you will. But um, given your experience, which is vast and deep, I would say, there's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek question that I like to start to break the ice, which is just, who is the best CEO? And it doesn't have to mean like the best performing, the most charismatic, but just who is like a CEO that you've come across in your journey that you think, wow, they're a really interesting person, they present well, they run a business well. However you want to frame this, go for it. Thanks for that opportunity, because I don't like the idea of a hero (laughs) CEO. I like a CEO that's fit for purpose. And the person who comes to mind is Colin Goldschmidt, who is the CEO for Sonic Healthcare. And I first looked at it back when the company was really small and was predominantly in New South Wales. And it's a company that is mostly pathology business. So your doctor, they write a script for a blood test. Sonic is the one who does that. And we, of course, saw lots of Sonic through COVID with all those tests. When the company was first amalgamating small private pathology businesses, I just remember a time where Colin said that he and the finance director used to go around and empty the desks of coins to pay people at the end of the week because it actually was an audacious scheme to put these businesses together and some of them had really only come to them because they're in financial difficulty. So for a pathologist to give up their particular business, they had to feel that either they were going to have to exit or they needed additional capital to keep going. So putting these businesses together was quite fraught and the first reporting season that I saw them, they had actually missed their hurdles and their target because One of the things we forget when we're looking at targets is it's trying to put dollars and activity into a discrete period. So that discrete period is that 12 months. And they miss those targets. 
everyone went, oh, my God, that's the end of it. Share price plummeted. But when I looked at what they'd done the previous year and what had happened with previous acquisitions is they had achieved their goals, but in three months after that 30th of June period. So I really liked the way Colin was able to stick to his guns, be quite clear about what they could and couldn't do, making sure that the disclosures to the market were adequate and then actually achieving what they had set out to do. And then, of course, they've now got pathology businesses throughout the country and throughout the globe. So they're kind of sonicking the world. And it really started from that. And they had challenges, you know, such as the government wanted to reduce health spend and wanted to reduce pathology spend. And these were the experts. And they went to great effort. And really, it would have been intense and I was an analyst then, so I was seeing them reasonably regularly. They pointed out to the government that if pathology was cut, then later on your health and hospital bills go up because people don't get tested. So there was a particular structure in the regulation that worked. Pulled back the pricing if it ran away too much. But basically distilling all that complexity into a listed company and being brave to actually implement all that makes him stand out in my mind. Mm, that's such a great example. And it's been a multi-bagger, in, to use the common tongue, it's been a multi-bagger for so many investors who have stayed along for the ride. So we'll come to your experience in just a moment. But one additional thing that I'd like to ask you is like, I, f- I feel like investing is this continuous learning journey. You learn something new and the moment that you think you haven't, or you can't learn anything new is the moment of probably your demise in this game. I'm curious, maybe what's something that you've learned over the past year? If you have any lessons that you might be maybe able to pass on to our community, for example, even if it's not something that you've learned, but maybe something that has come back to the front of mind. Yeah, I would say that this last 12-month period, it's really reminded me how averages work, which sounds really ridiculous. But, you know, it's taking all those numbers and you come up with a single number distilling that. And sometimes in the market, that that can mean that the index goes up, say, 5% or and everything more or less goes up 5%. Some go up 2%, some go up 7 But the market's up 5%. This particular market, though, is one of those where in the last couple of months, we've seen some shares are up 60% and some are down 60%. There are so many companies through the reporting season that are up 20% or down 20% for a market that's just trickling downwards. And um, I think that's something that brings me back again to the importance of having diversified holdings. So hopefully you've got some of the ones that more that are going up than than down, but also not to get too fixated on things like the recession and the expectations of a recession, which is two quarters of negative growth. So does that actually mean anything to anyone? Is some companies will do really well through a recession, some will do badly. Some will do badly early and better later. We've just got all these numbers being distilled into this one horror recession. And I just am reminded that people shouldn't run away from the market when that's happening. You need to have a more complex understanding about how the cycles work and how companies work. And your biggest friend is having a plan and knowing what you're going to do if this falls or that increases. 
just keep that in mind that this is not all that's going to be and it will be diverse, diverse outcomes over the next five years, which is probably where your horizon should be on equities. Yeah, it's been a really good reminder for a lot of investors. It's both good and bad, right? Because if you come into a moment like this, being prepared, the opportunity set actually increases. A lot of us don't think about that because of recency bias. We think, well, the market has fallen recently, therefore it must be a bad time. But if you've got that forward-looking perspective, maybe it's a great time, right? One thing which we'll come to in a bit more depth in a moment is the work you do with the ASA, of course. But I'm curious, your role is very, very important. The ASA in particular, your role. And I'm curious, what is it about what you do day to day that you find most challenging, but maybe equally that could be most rewarding? Like, what is it about it that keeps you doing it basically every day? The most challenging thing is the complexity and the background. We have many people who come to us and have an issue and it's a small issue The difficulty is making sure we don't overlook proper full issues and we do address those as they arise, but also that we look at the checks and balances. So a company isn't there just to produce a 5% per annum share price increase with XYZ dividend as expected. It is almost a living entity and that's what I love about companies, the way that they're a group of people that it's more than just the sum of the individuals. It's all about the staff, the customers, the executives, and the company almost becomes its own entity. And that means that it will change how it behaves through however the market impacts it. And now I'm derailing. I can see that. I think I may have tried to articulate this message to some of our community a little while ago about the book uh, Sapiens. I don't know if you've read that by Yuval Harari, but it's basically this idea of like, The reason we even have property rights, the reason we form companies, for example, is the idea that we just have a belief, a shared belief that companies exist and therefore they do because without that belief, there is no reason for them to exist, right? And so I think of companies, it sounds like a very philosophical thing, but I think of companies as like just basically a united tribe, like people coming together to solve bigger problems. And it's a very, I don't know, faith-based way to look at investing, but that's how I think about it. I think about why does the stock market go up? It's actually because of what you just articulated, like the sum of the parts, probably not as much as what the kind of the focus on top of those parts equals, if that makes sense. And that's something also to strip out, the second guessing. And we've seen that with like GameStop a couple of years ago, where you can have what's conceived to be as a democratization of the market, where people are just second guessing what the value is or trusting there's another person to come after them so they can run up with a momentum, get get a lot of gains. Whereas you do sometimes have to go back to the complexity of the company, what it's producing. They are, even the tech companies are producing something that somebody needs and it's pulling resources together and it's separating us from just being farmer gatherers where we just gather what we eat and we die if we have nothing saved. That specialisation requires people to be looking at what the companies are doing and making sure that it is fit for purpose. And I suppose that's where ASA comes in and a whole lot of people in the chain of assurance for companies to make sure that if a company particularly has access to capital on the stock exchange, which means going to retail shareholders who will not by which we mean the smaller shareholders rather than a sophisticated or wealthy or wholesale 
or institutional investor. Going to those people has obligations and all the companies have to follow those obligations. So how they disclose, how they're likely to perform. As you mentioned before, stewardship, not just taking all that capital and giving it to the executives, not blowing it up, not investing on hope. You've got to have serious strategies and mindfulness about how they do what they do in order to get the returns that capital needs. And sometimes that's considered like a bad thing in today's world that a company, so we've seen with Commonwealth Bank, for example, making $10 billion. One of the things ASA has to do and all of us have to do is remember how everything is really tied together. And I'm not saying this means Commonwealth Bank should be able to make whatever it wants or behave how it wants. But while we're being careful about what they do, we really need to remember that we are getting people to save their super. Way back, people got to find benefit super. It's somebody else's problem, how you're going to live in your retirement. Now it's all our individual responsibility to make sure we have retirement earnings or we won't eat. Commonwealth Bank and the big banks are a big part of that. Also, the banks providing all the boring banking stuff that doesn't necessarily make money. That is also a role the big banks play. But of course, we can't just go, well, just make as much money as you like. We have to be, again, mindful about how these interconnections work and make sure we don't harm harm the company just to make a point. If there's a cost that they should bear, then that should be allocated to them. They need to be mindful about not making excess profits as well. And in some ways, they do talk about that. Whether they've got the balance right, I'm not sure. But those are the sorts of things that having a critical appreciation of companies and reading all that they put out allows us to start sending them in the right direction. Yeah, so important, the role that the advocacy plays here, um, which we'll double-click on in a minute. It's really interesting about the CBA result. I, when I heard, saw that number come out and people kind of up in arms about it, I thought to myself, well, they do facilitate a very important role in our society. As the free market's capitalist in me speaking here, Fiona, um, <laughs> I did think to myself, well, they do, as long as they're doing it fairly and honestly, then they're making a profit and they should make a profit. We don't say the same thing about Apple making tens of billions of dollars globally. We might complain that their phones are a bit expensive. And they don't pay enough tax anywhere. Yeah, that's it. But if, I mean, there's plenty of other companies where they're hyper profitable and we don't really complain too much. It's just so easy to put a you know, crosshair on the big banks here in Australia. But another thing that is an interesting aside from this, going in a totally different direction here, Fiona, but I had it put to me not too long ago by someone who wasn't a champion of the banks, so someone that's not very friendly to the banks. And he did say to me that at least they were able to pay, like all the banks were able to pay for all the wrongdoings. Whereas if we had a much more fragmented marketplace, maybe that wouldn't have been the case. Maybe we couldn't go through a Royal Commission and we couldn't go through this and they would be able to withstand that. So... Like you said, it's all a balance and quite to find that. Good that they could afford to pay it. But uh, yeah, I also agree with that, that quite often you'll see the challenger brands and they will pick the most profitable part of the market and they will serve them so well and so much more cheaply. But if that market segment vanquishes, that's the end of that company. Yeah, it is indeed. And we should actually have markets that allow companies to go broke. And when we have what they you know, the systemically important companies like the big four banks, they've actually recognised as that in legislation, we have to be mindful of making sure they can be sustained. 
But again, I go back to saying it doesn't mean they can make all the profit they want. It just has to be done well. I do find when people were complaining about Coles and Woolworths also making sizable sums and increases, but there's never a mention of how much they've invested. But they've built new buildings, refurbished, hired more people. I do think if we criticise the actual quantum, we should start looking at more complex metrics. Mm, Agreed. So before we get into more of that type of thing, which is probably going to be the the bulk of the conversation around governance and the ASA, for people that don't know, the ASA is a sponsor of the show, so thank you very much to ASA for being a supporter of the show and vice versa. We'd love to support the ASA, Fiona. Um, There's actually a checklist. I call it a checklist. It's available on the website and there'll be a link in the show notes and it's got 28 points that help guide both the monitors and general shareholders on some of the requirements that the ASA sets down for corporate governance. And it's so useful because for someone like me, Fiona, um, I'll pull some things out of that and quiz you on it in a little while. But for someone like me that is a an analyst and a fundamental analyst, that's how I describe myself. I could put myself in a box. For someone like me, it's great to see and great to have that resource available because management is like probably the number one thing that I get asked about right after is how do I do evaluation? It's probably like, how do you assess management? Because it is so difficult. How do you assess a company's culture? That's all in a roundabout way encapsulated in that. But before we get to that, I'd like to go back in time for a moment. How did you get started on this journey? Where did your pathway to finance begin? It will sound really trite, but at school, I liked maths because, you know, maths, once you've learned it, you get it right. Yeah. Get into more complex stuff later and enjoyed English, enjoyed economics. We had teachers who talked about critical thinking and that appealed to me that somebody's advertising something to you, don't just take it all as black, you know, perfectly true. Have a thought, what are they trying to get you to do? So I left school with, I'd done my, parent, my fa- parents' farm accounting just because somebody had to do it. So had a little bit of understanding, left uni with a finance, you know, commerce, accounting systems degree and thought, what do I want to do? And really the only thing that pulled together maths, economics and writing was analysis, equity analysis. And I really loved the way companies had their own personality. And so that is how I started off as a junior equity analyst. And you started at Combank, right? I did. Did you say off, off air to me a moment ago, it had something to do with entrepreneurial, I can't remember exactly what you said. So with anal- equity analysts, buy-side equity analysts, you usually have a specialisation. And I started my career doing forests and entrepreneurs. And that was back in the day when we had uh, John Spalvin's ad steam, which was a convoluted group of companies that used to pay each other a dividend. And back in the day, one analyst had tried to figure out whether it was just past the parcel or not. It was past the parcel. Basically, each company paid each other what you know the hundred million dollars, and it went round and round. And there was only one one hundred million dollars in the whole entity, and it blew up in the early nineties and the recession we had to have doing forestry. Elders, which was a beer company back then, it also had Elders Resources, which had forests. So I ended up with all the companies that were going to go broke. The only good thing was. We didn't have any. Got an early life experience, though, because of the profile of John Spalvins and the people associated with elders, and there were a few, like John Elliott, and there were a few more. 
Everyone kept saying if you could only target what they were buying next, we could make so much money. And these weren't equity specialists. These were people who had been in the business and through seniority had the role, whereas the equity specialists were a bit further down. And actually, it reminds me very much of going into the tech rec where you're almost losing your job because things are running away. But as a fundamental analyst, you're kind of scratching your head going, how is there any value in this? The one tells, for example. And then 25 minutes into the disaster, you're beating everybody else's performance because all of a sudden those things are worth nothing and your relative performance on the things you don't hold is really beneficial. Yeah, the entrepreneurs were fascinating and that goes back to the companies very much being real things. So my favourite company tour of all time was the Spalvin Breakup Tour, which was potato growing in Tasmania. Petersville, they made the potatoes for McDonald's. Uh, Penfold's Wine was in the, the group. David Jones was in the group. Woolworths, there was the Adsteam Steamship Company, Peter's Ice Cream Herbert Adams Pies, just all the things that regular people interact with through their life was in this this conglomerate, which all had to be sold. Oh, wow. So that was all in one big company. It was all in these shareholder, daisy chain shareholdings. So Spalvins would own between, ad steam, 20 to 50%. Howard Smith was in there and they owned a business that ultimately has ended up up really being Bunnings, Blackwoods, everything. Yeah. There was just so much owned and touched by these businesses. And they had real world fallout for people because people would have lost their jobs as the businesses were being rationalized to come back on the market. But they also served, you know, David Jones was a big retailer then and Woolworths. And we know how important all those companies are. So that was my favorite company tour for all time. And Also a lesson about just taking a pause when you hear hype. Really important to go, hey, is this hype? And if it's hype, just follow it through. Going back to Colin Goldschmidt and Sonic, at times that never got hyped to that degree, but people were all or nothing. It was like, yeah, we've seen them do these things before. We can't expect it to keep going up 100% in short periods of time, but you can Look at what it's done before and see what's reasonable. I think you probably need to target some of those companies that are just going to do better out of whatever environment comes. You know, that's what good management does and good boards oversight companies where they do better out of whatever circumstances come to them. And over time, that's where you can build more solid wealth. And then you can have fun with the money originally you can afford to lose playing with the ones that do exciting things and you need to get out quick. Mm. This is, um, it probably sends a shiver down the spine of anyone that holds a conglomerate today thinking, have I missed something? But um, there aren't, I'd say there aren't as many of those around. Now, there's still a few of them, but maybe not as many. I was just going to say that one of the things that having more scientific approach to portfolio analysis brought up was in Australia, we have oligopolies because of the nature of our distance and population. Oligopolies mean a small number of entities like competing, but we also have in portfolio analysis, I don't need Sonic Healthcare to buy another health business that's totally unrelated to it because if I want to do that, I can buy it with my 
own funds. I want Sonic to Sonic the bejesus out of what it is they they deal with. And it is unusual to have those conglomerates now because as an owner of shares, you can just buy a different style of chair if that's how you want to tailor your portfolio. And we often found um, in the days of conglomerates, because I did those two back in the 90s, you know, it said that, oh, they'll even out our returns, but it was either all of them were doing poorly or are about to do poorly. It was never, I think, because of that needed focus being absent when you're a conglomerate, it wasn't honing to get the best out of everything. They just basically would underperform. As a general forecast would be conglomerate underperform. Probably the only one we've seen that has done differently to that is West Farmers. Yeah, I would maybe add one more. I don't know if you'd call it conglomerate, but I guess you maybe maybe you might is Sol Patents, Washington Sol Patentson. More of an, I guess, investment. Yeah, I'd be seeing them more as an investment company yeah. than a conglomerate. But yes, there are companies that do it well and it's all about having the focus Wes Farmers have had an arm that looked at their acquisitions and whether or not Cole's acquisition and investment was the best best it could have been. You know, been very seriously volatile markets since, you know, the last 20, 30 years. We had crashes and pandemics and recessions and all that sort of thing. You know, whether they've done better than if they just had stuck to their individual businesses, you know, we can't not worth, worth talking about, but there will be some happy West Farmers shareholders. What do you think it is, just to delve a bit deeper, what do you actually think it is that made West, allowed West Farmers to thrive when others just fell by the wayside? They had their Gresham partners. That was the business. They were really smart and they looked at acquiring things. Perhaps it was that bravery, that ability to go, okay, it looks like Everybody thinks it's a poor idea for us to buy coals and too hard, but we're going to do, we believe in our forecasts and our capacity and we're going to do it. I think many companies fall down on implementation. You know, they'll have a great idea and then something will derail it. So perhaps they have been better and that might be because they're in a distance in in the West, so they're not being lumped on by all the investors going, I'll do this, do that. So ability to stick to their knitting and be brave, and perhaps it's just also that there's not so many of them that if you have a group of 50, maybe only two will succeed and maybe they will sell some West Farmers. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And then- When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I guess behind the scenes, there's also those the private equity firms, which don't tend to have the the duration. They don't go the distance like Wes Farmers and say Solpats might, and that also gives them a structural advantage, perhaps. In terms, do you mean of the private equity firms investing in all sorts of different businesses? Yeah, and always having an exit, like they go in with the end in mind, right? Um, and Solpats and Wes Farmers do too, but I'd say it's a different time horizon. Different time horizon, but I think that is a really good point because, of course, West Farmers had a chemicals business as well, which they've exited, and a coal business. So, yes, they have not held things forever just because they've held them forever. 
And I think that's like a lesson that investors can learn as well, that really you should have a plan, you should have an exit plan. And the worst disasters I've ever seen are those without an exit or without even a sense of scenario planning. So the issue with ads team was everything had to go faster and faster, would fall over, and then, of course, the music was stopped for them and it fell over. But there are times when you think, oh, I just need a little bit more. I suppose it's like gambling rather than investing. Rather than having proper structure and saying, okay, well, I like this company, but I'm not wed to it. I can sell it and I think I'd sell it for this reason or for this price. That, I think, makes a better investor. Don't necessarily have to have a hard buy and a hard sell price, but you need to be able to say, why have I got this company and how long am I planning to? Because they might not last forever. We've had heaps of the team from Solpats on the show before. No one from West Farmers, but hopefully that happens soon. I remember with West Farmers' expansion of the Bunnings franchise into the UK, I think it was home base from memory, they kind of cut that really quick, which surprised me, but maybe that's another thing that they tend to do is like they cut quickly if they know something's not going to work. Like you said, they have that bravery to be like, yeah, we failed, we're moving on. I seem to recall it was a little bit slower than everyone would have Like, so I still think there was an issue, but they did cut it, whereas others have not. So I remember David Jones in the year they they tried to get into food, and that was a really expensive foray that failed really publicly and really quickly. And part of the issue, I think, was not having an exit strategy when they went in, not having a an idea like, how do we know this is successful? What will success look like? If we are not succeeding, what do we do? And I think always when you go offshore, there's that temptation to assume it's very similar to Australia. But great thing about having access to lots of information now is we can actually look at those international company accounts, for example, and see whether we think that it is like our market and what do we have to be aware of? Now, back in the day, we, I did Brambles, with, so transport company, and one of the institutional equity analysts would get the French accounts of other companies, comparable companies, and have a comparison. So we could have a look and see what other companies were doing in terms of what margins they were getting, what type of investment they needed to lift their revenue, all that sort of comparator information is now available, but we all will have to worry about our biases because often when you read the data, you go, oh, of course, that's just just like what I see. And when you delve a bit further or you start losing money, you're like, no, it's not special difference. Bramble's been one of the best performing companies in Australia. A lot of people don't realise that, but it's actually been an exceptional performing company and has been around for an extremely long time. Another thing that people don't, it's almost too long for people to remember <laughs> how long Bramble's has been around. And it too, like it's had bad years and good years. And interestingly, that's uh, you could maybe weigh in on this a bit better than I can. I didn't realise because I just thought Brambles does pallets, you know, like the Chet pallets. You see them out the back of the Woolworths and you think, what are those blue bits of timber? That's not a business, but it actually is. And interestingly, when I was looking further into this, Fiona, I realised how it's a play on sustainability long before sustainability was even a question because those pallets are recycled, right? 
Yeah, there's all sorts of complexity in running a pallet business, but yeah, they very much an ESG friendly business. Uh, they actually used to own Clean Away too, Brambles, the waste business. But on the pallets, there's a great science to making sure that the pallets are in the right place and moving them around in the right way. And there's a charging regime that um, can build profits. And one of the that's where actually when you look at these companies, it's interesting even for life. Brambles and Chep were in Germany. So you might not realise, but in Germany, if you put stuff like paper into a supermarket as a supplier, you have to take it away. So being able to have, they also had the flat boxes that you see vegetables and the like showcased in. You know, moving things around as the logistics of that has a really big impact on the cost and the quality of whatever products you're going to get and also on the waste. And in Germany, companies were forced to take the cost of that waste, whereas, say, in Australia back in those years, you just put the boxes there and somebody else had to move them, deal with them. Whereas now we're making companies to be responsible into, well, we're getting towards that end-to-end where we don't buy things if it doesn't have a little recycle logo on it and we do try and avoid excess packaging. For those people that are unsure of what we're talking about, those uh, I think they, I'm going off the top of my head, like an RFD or RFG or something was the name of that other type of thing, which is like made from a certain type of plastic. Flat crates. And they could fold it down and then it just could be stored away really easily. Well, the thing is you don't store them. You have to get them back to the source because they don't just, you reuse them and you get better chip and the pallet people and brambles get a better return if they get more usage out of the different items. And there's also a cost to transport them. So you have them, pallets go full to a, a warehouse and then they come back empty. So you might not send, because you can put more pallets on the truck if they're empty, you don't have all the trucks going back to the same place. They move the pallets around so they can be filled again and moved around. And um, getting that return is just so crucial. And I think we forget that with companies sometimes. So it's very much like companies and return on capital. The greater your return on the amount of money you have to spend to make a ne- the next dollar, the better outcome for shareholders. And it's the same with the pallets. The further that pallet goes in an undamaged format, the better it is for the person who owns the pallet and is hiring it out. I always looked at Brambles as a shareholder or a potential shareholder and I thought, this thing's only sitting on a dividend yield of 2%. It looks so mature. Why would anyone buy this for effectively an equity yield of 2%? I was thinking, this just seems so overvalued. But now I truly understand the beauty in that business and what it's been able to do over such a long period of time. And I think it's just one of those businesses you've got to have on your watch list, not to give recommendations, but just to have it on your watch list, just to see how it behaves and to be there if it ever does lose its shine momentarily. Yeah, so definitely has gone up and down over time. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But interesting. I think a lot of companies also have other competitors will come out. Mm. So having a watch on brambles and that style of business can give you information for new companies or even your own personal business. Always encourage people to look at all the information that you can get and learn about. It's not just about investing. It can be about your own employment portfolio business you want to start yourself oh yeah as a long time alphabet or google shareholder fiona and being an online digital business that i run i've always read and always tune in for the analyst calls 
for Google because I always want to know what they're up to in search or they're up to on YouTube or they're up to in podcasts so that I know what they're working on so I can be there to meet them when they get there, maybe the other way around, so that I my business can be structurally advantaged from everything that I learned from them. But I'm going off, I'm this is tangent after tangent, which is lovely. I did want to ask you one uh, pointed question, which was you spent a lot of time as an analyst, obviously, many years, and then you worked at the ASA, if I'm not mistaken, but then you went back to Macquarie so back into that world, I guess, in private wealth, and then come back to ASA again. Can you reconcile that for me? Sure. One of the issues I had as an equity analyst, which I was on the buy side, so we had a portfolio, you're only as good as your last call. And after more than a decade, 15 years or 18 years, can't remember which, I felt like there was more return to be made just having private investments than to worry about where you were in the performance charts at the end of each month. So you're taking a long-term investment, but you really are only as good as your last month's performance. And it just became frustrating because prices go up and prices go down and they will always do that. And I've held companies where you get in at 60 and cents and you get out at and portfolio managers because I was more junior then got out at 80 cents, took me a while to get them back in at 120 and then it went to $9 over the next few years. But just that performance drive isn't quite the same as assessing good companies and it comes back to that idea of good management will optimise whatever comes their way and a good company will do that. And I think you can, I like that style of investing where you just hold those, you hold those companies and then you do have shorter time frame investments, but you actually do need the time to be able to watch those. So I just felt that I just couldn't be bothered if the price went up 50 cents today and went down 50 cents tomorrow. <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. So that was behind that. And of course, in this life, getting a redundancy is really handy. The company I was with bought out someone. So, um, that was handy. And I had a long interest in governance and I was at Westpac at that time who actually were behind one of the governance leaders. Regnan is a new firm in this, oh, well, not new firm, it was back then. It was developing in the country. So I had an interest in governance and I got the opportunity to work for a board performance startup just as they started up. And then the ASA role came up and that seemed interesting because as you mentioned, it's a bit of an unusual thing to understand corporate actions and to have been on the side of buying and selling or telling someone to buy and sell chunks of shares and being on the governance side. So putting those together really suited ASA. But then life happened, <laughs> got divorced, needed money. <laughs> this is ASA is a not-for-profit. <laughs> I'm okay with a 50% discount as my way of giving back, but <laughs> I needed I needed to get a proper job and actually I'd, I'd never been on the sell side properly oh, yeah. before that, but we were an independent investment analyst group within the private wealth business, so we weren't able to be told what to write about or if Macquarie, if the stockbrokers thought that this was going to do well, we basically would produce what our value, what our forecasts were for, say, the, the bigger asset classes. And then we use the institutional investment analysts research and put that more in retail speak because a 30-page report, people 
really want the guts of it, not necessarily the 30 pages. So that was a really great position because I joined at the peak of the market before the GFC. 2007, right? 2007. And the peak, I think, was October. I joined in December. And (laughs) of course, life was very different after that. And it was really great to have access to think to people like the international economists in Germany and the US and actually have this subprime crisis explained from the inside so that we could then distill it for the retail audience because I hadn't appreciated it that there were people in the market who'd had 10 years of growth. We had people say, hey, but that property trust was $2.70 yesterday. Surely it's at 70 cents, surely you'd be an idiot if you just didn't keep buying till like $2. You know, that cliche catch a falling knife. Having been in the market before and seen what happens when debt goes bad, we could appreciate the volatility of the valuations. So a big property portfolio in a all's going well for the next hereafter, property would be worth a billion dollars. In the circumstance where banks can't increase their lending, no matter how good your property is, because they've got the bad properties on their books and they can't get rid of them, if you don't have enough money to pay your debt, you're going to be insolvent. 70 cents is probably generous. So being able to get all the access to information, but also to benefit from the fact that I've been through the crash and the 1991 recession you had to have and the tech wreck really did help with bringing across some of the clients and advisors and the like who'd never seen a falling price. And nowadays, we've had so much happen since then. I think people are a bit more aware of how cycles work. But we also see that with interest rates, don't we, where people are a bit frightened of them going up, but they were historically low for so long that really we do need to keep those cycles in mind. Great to take advantage, but just remember that Things that go down often go up with interest rates and share prices, the opposite. I think just speaking with you, you get that understanding. Like anyone that's listening to this right now gets that understanding of they're probably getting that pattern recognition through time. I don't think enough investors take the time to look backwards. I find it's most comforting to look backwards when times are most uncertain because the old cliche of have we been here before, the chances of that is probably, yes, it may not look the same, but it, it will definitely feel the same. And to hear of those lessons, we had Michael Kemp, who actually appeared at the Australian Shareholders Association. I've been reading his book. Yeah, you list his contract. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I think it's a great read. He came on the show not too long ago and spoke about how like, contracts for difference, and I keep bringing this up, is he spoke about how contracts for difference are not a new thing. And yet a lot of people think there's some sort of modern trading instrument, but I think it was in the 1770s he recalled that uh, the English parliament was trying to ban them. So, you know, these types of things, if you're not a student of history, it's very hard, I think, to be truly in control of your behaviour and to also understand how things do actually rhyme over time. Maybe that's just a reminder to look for context when you're doing things. Look for context with companies. We're asking them when we get to sustainability reporting and climate action, they're being asked to have scenarios. And back in the day, that's what analysts did and also companies would talk about scenarios as well like okay this is what we expect for next year but what's the path look like what could it be what might it not be you know there's always competitors there's always you've got it 
every customer you sell to now, you've got to sell to them again. And if it's food, that's not going to, the demand for baseline food's not going to change much. But if it's some super duper product, it might be that that'll be overtaken in the future. So just be aware of cycles, life cycle of a company. I love this chart, Fiona. I sometimes share it with our students and it shows a share price. It plots a share price of just any type of share price, a fictitious company. And then it shows analyst price targets. And basically it's just a straight line off different points of the chart. And as it gets to the top, they've pointed most aggressively up into the future, up to the top right. And as it falls, they're pointing most aggressively downwards. And it's a recency bias type of thing and confirmation bias. But I was, I've, fell prey to this one too in the kind of coronavirus rally you could say i was forecasting some revenue for a tech company and i was forecasting 30 percent year-on-year returns for the next four years fast forward to now it actually has gone backwards so this happens right it gets it's not easy obviously but um it can happen and just having some sort of awareness of what happened in the past is really important yeah i think that can help you be calm when things are changing. And I suppose that's also where you just need to make sure you're diversified. Some companies will go broke over time. In your investing, you probably want to be able to tolerate two that go broke and two that shoot the lights out and the others will be in the middle. Or you might stick with more boring companies and have more slower ride. Or you might go ETFs because you think that the market will go up and you might have a particular bent in your ETF. I've not bought banks because I, for my sins, have a retail super fund and I figure they've got enough of the boring stuff. So I just have a few health stocks. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, our price for health is going to go up forever. So that gives a tilt, gives a tilt to my overall investments. Yeah, fair enough. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit towards governance now. And one of the things that maybe just to set the scene for folks is, well, first of all, a very simple question I might ask you. Can anyone go to an AGM? Typically, you need to be a shareholder. Difficulty with an AGM, the company is charged with allowing all shareholders as a group to participate and ask questions. But if you look at Commonwealth Bank, they have 850,000 shareholders. There is no way there's going to be a physical meeting with 850,000 shareholders. And I'd also suggest that you won't get much done in a meeting with 850,000 people online and participating either. So many companies do restrict people to shareholders only. That is more the case since COVID because they want to be certain health warnings are followed. But there are some companies who are a bit take all comers and allow visitors. But the company must only allow the shareholders to attend. And then, like I say, there'll be others who are like potential shareholders. And you can probably contact the company and check which type they are, whether they're going to be restricting numbers or expanding them. Yeah, that's a good one. Just a bit of housekeeping. So in the governance framework here in Australia, many people will be familiar with listing rules. They've probably seen some number and says ASX listing rules, number, number, number. And they're, they're probably familiar with the usual documentation. You know, there's a an appendix, whatever, cash flow report, annual report, you name it. But can you just give us the bird's eye view of who are the actors that 
are in Australia from a governance perspective, keeping companies accountable, keeping the industry maybe even in check and the system operating fairly? That's a really good question. And it's one of the things that when I'm engaging with our members or people who are writing in with particular issues that are relevant to retail shareholders, I have to set the scene because many people will say, where is the section in the corporation's law? So the Corporations Act that says the company has to do this or can't do that. And we have that overarching corporations law and we have other legislation and regulations where the companies have to meet the obligations. But how that looks is actually determined by case law. So 200 years ago, somebody argued about various ways we would interpret these words. So you've got the case law that feeds into that. So corporations law and regulations, we have the ASX listing rules, and that will set out disclosures, what the periodic disclosures are, what forms they have to be in, conditions for becoming a listed company. There's a whole bunch of rules there. And the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC, is one of the parties that oversights that. The Reserve Bank of Australia, the people who do the interest rates, also have a go. They're ASIC and RBA are responsible for making sure that the financial markets operate appropriately and maintaining reputation and the like. So there's all those those groups. And we have the anti-money laundering group, Austrac, which you know have a whole lot of other conditions. And then you've got all the rules for the participants. So if you are a broker, there will be rules about what you can do and how you can sell to people and how you can engage. Then we also have the analysts who, they don't have such a governance. They don't set rules, for example. But back in, when we're talking about Adsteam, one thing that went wrong with Adsteam and old-fashioned HIH and OneTel is a break in the chain of assurance, which isn't audit, but it's basically... In a company, the directors, the executives, the staff really have to make sure everything's done properly. The internal audit people, the internal controls are part of the defence. The external auditor who is independent, but their directors through the audit committee give them the external auditor their task, they have to make sure everything's reported in a fair and proper way. So that's within the company. And then I say that even retail shareholders have a place to play in that chain of assurance. We've got media and analysts calling out things that aren't as they should be, but your shareholders, make sure you get so much information and whenever something goes wrong, people ask for even more information. But if nobody's reading it, you end up with those disasters like the ad steams and the like, which were reliant on, you know, they hadn't gone broke before, so why would they go broke now? And that's another complexity with companies that people don't seem to realise that it's a bit like musical chairs. You'll see if you read the annual report, which you don't have to read many of them, just dip in. And if 7.7 million shareholders, if 50,000 look at one report and 50,000 another, we'll get through them all. But make sure you do read what the auditor says. In some of the disasters, the auditor had said, we're worried about a going concern. And why it's like musical chairs is if you had to sell up everything you own today, you'd know that you'd have to sell your car at a discount. You can't go out in the street and get whatever the market price is. You need orderly sales if you have a house or your shares. If you had to dump them today, you get 
no money whatsoever, whereas in the ordinary course, you'll have cash flowing from it. So when companies fail to be going concern, all of a sudden they go from being worth a billion dollars to being worth maybe nothing because the debtors all have to be paid and all of a sudden the asset values in a quick sale get crunched. So um, important that everybody does their part and just keeps an eye on what's happening with the company and calls out issues as they arise. And that's where ASA, because we're one of the few groups that attend the shareholder meetings and ask the questions, that's, I think, where we add value. And the ASA has been around since the 1960s. In those days, like the ad steam companies, people made a lot of money out of selling public shares to people and then they failed. And that was a loss and there was poor governance in practice. And there was also a bit of a an attitude that you're benefiting from my intellect, so I'm bringing you along for the ride rather than I respect you as a person who offers me capital by buying my shares in, you know, or going in an IPO. I have an obligation to reward you for providing me with that capital with a return rather than, hey, let's just cross our fingers and hope nothing goes bad and you get some more money. So, yeah, everyone really needs to be on the lookout for failures or companies misleading people. And generally you can pick that up because when you question it, the spin isn't, is the spin becomes more obvious because there's no backup data. A lot of people listening to this will be like, I, I feel like I don't have the time or I'm a bit nervous. And sometimes when you do spot these types of things where you're unsure, it actually isn't you. It's actually, there is something that is wrong. And so don't just take it for granted if, if you're listening to this and you think, well, I'm not experienced like Fiona is, I'm not experienced like a fund manager, This maybe it's just me. It's probably, to be honest, it's probably not just you. You can call the company, you can speak to people, but also you can appoint the ASA as your proxy vote, if I'm not mistaken, Fiona. You can say, here you go, ASA, you go and vote for me based on the set of rules that you publicly say. A lot of our members do that. We quite often investigate what we do and how we do it. And we'll have a lot of members who don't want to be attending the AGM and don't want to read the reports. And as I was saying, it's a bit like if everybody just trusts everybody else to do their job, somebody somewhere has to actually do the job. So that's us. So we read the reports. An example of how AGMs make or our engagement makes a difference is going through COVID. You couldn't meet, you might remember, and none of the constitutions allowed virtual meetings. In the UK, they basically had a bunch of almost insiders go and walk in a park and that was considered their annual meeting. So the public couldn't attend. Whereas in Australia, we were talking with ASIC, who were the ones who allowed having those virtual meetings. And we didn't want, because it was such a complex time, you don't want the companies to go, oh, let's just go virtual because we can fob people off and not get a true meeting. We were feeding back to ASIC how those experiences were going because we're one of the few people that attend a couple of hundred meetings in a six to 12-month period. So we were able to give feedback to the regulator about how that was working. And it was kind of similar with the capital raisings where quite often money goes straight to the institutional investors because if you're back to that going concern idea in COVID, some of the companies were worried that music had stopped and that they would go broke. So they 
would go, or GFC is actually where this really crystallised, go to institutions with a 30 or 40% discounted placement. And then once you've got that money, it doesn't matter because you've shored up the balance sheet. So the share price goes back up. So if you've left retail shareholders out, they've been diluted. Yes, the institutions have kept you in business, but retail shareholders have been left out. So we had engagement again with ASIC about making sure there's a share purchase plan with placements that are done on the same pricing as the institutional investments to make sure that that systemic moving of capital away from retail didn't occur. So that kind of governancey thing where somebody else is looking out is helpful. But I'd also say that it's a bit like anything that's complex. You need to step back and look at perspective and context. And then you don't have to deep dive on everything. Just have a look at one. And, you know, maybe pick one that suits like, might be like your workplace or your business proposition. Just have a look at one. How about this? We had uh, Lawrence Cunningham, Professor Lawrence Cunningham, on the show a while ago. And the one of the major thrusts of that conversation was about the huge wave of passive investing. We've all heard of names like BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, and all of the ETF providers around the world. And I was just sitting in my barber shop the other day and someone was saying, like, have you heard of Vanguard? Have you heard of BlackRock? They control the country. I didn't have it in me. I was getting my hair cut. I didn't have it in me to say, well, actually, it's probably your money. But anyway. Oh, it's probably only 10 or 20%. Yeah, well, that's it, yeah. And I didn't have the time to sit there and and educate this person on that. But the concern beyond that is that these organisations rising up and having a really good experience for the most part for their clients and for their end investors. However, there is a concern that from an advocacy and corporate governance and stewardship perspective that how are they voting? How are they making decisions? How are they, like, what impact does that have if a company does do the wrong thing? Like, do they say anything? Don't they say anything? Like, I'm not necessarily looking for the solution to this, Fiona, but just your general thoughts on how you've seen that play out over decades and where we, to where we are today. I think what we do see is occasionally people step away from the stewardship role in the investing where they just avoid voting. So, In my history, when I was in an institutional investor, some clients chose us to evaluate what the vote should be. Others required advice and then they would make up their own mind. Others didn't care. Don't charge us for, because it's not just going. (laughs) Fingers of the wind. What's going on here? Yeah, Yeah, just occasionally hit, you know, every 30 hidden against. There's a bit of work that goes into it. So I think from time to time, we move away from people doing that assurance role, making sure things are okay. And the information is quite often disclosed. With an ETF, I know BlackRock is particularly good at um, engaging with their companies, but they have their own particular style and interest where they basically suggest that if there's better governance over the long term, their passive funds will do better. I don't think it applies to all their funds. The other thing we're seeing, which is emerging in the US, we have an ESG, so Environmental Sustainability Governance backlash, that the companies like BlackRock and Van Eyck are starting to allow people to vote their own shares. And we see that with the likes, I think Australian Super may do it as well. So we are seeing that drawing in of stakeholders to the end user to vote. 
I do think it is important that we don't allow the companies to just do what they do without any oversight and the voting is a way to achieve that oversight because people do vote directors out or rather this is where it's a bit frustrating my role because usually you don't vote a director out but they will be flagged as they will get a negative vote and back in the day if they got more than 10% against they'd be they wouldn't stand so it'd be like you didn't even have to vote them out but they've become a bit more resilient since then to the good and just a little example of that is there was a company called Navitas, which was taken over and their chair got 51% vote the last time she was voted back in. There was a large shareholder within the company. They wanted a scheme of arrangement. The independent parts of the board said that they weren't, the scheme of arrangement wasn't offering a high enough sum to be agreed by everyone. And so those people had big slabs of shares and they voted against the chair. What I like to point out is she did get back in with 51% and at less than 50, like 49.99, she would have failed to be elected. But for a scheme, the threshold 75%. So obviously the scheme wouldn't have gone ahead if people were voting for her, because I would say that it would be still that 49.48% voting. But yeah, the chairs used to, directors used to dip out really low, low against votes, but they are a bit stronger now. And sometimes they are protests rather than protests rather than actual, we must get rid of this person. But we're all prepared to vote against if we should get rid of a director. And it actually does, and I've seen this play out in real life, even on those hybrid AGMs, you see the people that get the less than optimal votes for an election or re-election, you see that the eyebrows raise and the like. The media does pay attention to it because it's normally enough. Like a sniff is enough, or where there's you know smoke, there might be fire. So it's normally enough to raise those eyebrows and actually question what is actually going on. And let's be honest, the board's a PR machine as well, right? So they need to have a good standing because they are all yeah business people, right? They want. And they are charged with making sure the company has a good reputation. But again, I come back to I, you know, the likes of the Navitas experience. I am so pleased that that chair, who did end up with a scheme at a better price with a more than seventy five percent approval, I'm glad that she wore such a huge against vote. And again, the devil is often in that detail. True. Yeah, be careful not to be overly emotional, but it is a flag because. I have also seen people get approved at 99.8%. So that still happens. There are still people who are just so happy with the director and they all vote for and at least 50% of shares are typically voted now. I think uh, this idea of the passive investor having a more active role in advocacy, I think that has to happen because from where I sit at least, I think as the rightful owners of those Vanguard, BlackRock, insert name of index provider funds, they should be able to have that, even though it would be like logistically and technically probably a nightmare for different reasons. It should be done and it's worth doing. Tech should improve, I think, too. Yeah. Because one of the things when you look at the likes of, I know Australian Super, if you have shares with them, you can have direct shares, but say there's an SPP that only has a two-day closing period, they need extra days because of just the dispersion of all their in clients. But ultimately, you'd think that maybe we could get some sort of straight through processing so that you could have 
you could be one step removed and still have the ability to make Australian Super take up that particular offer or vote this way. But it is costly now, so we do need tech change. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the broking community, like some of those brokers, HIN-based brokers, that everyone is easily identifiable, and some use custodial models. But how do they identify who are the end users? Well, they still have an internal database to show who owns what, right? So there should be an ability to pass that through in some way, shape, or form. So I've got one extra question for you, and I know this is a little bit tricky to answer here, but can you give us any type of, any examples where, and I can think of one being the AGL one in recent years, any examples where the advocacy has stood out to you as a really important pillar and the company monitoring governance writ large over the past few years, say, you, you've seen this like play out in your professional life where it's been clear that advocacy has been an important detail. And I think it's important always, but can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit, maybe with some examples? Okay, so one that comes to mind is the Westpac situation after the Royal Commission into Financial Services, misconduct in the financial services industry. Initially, after that, the hearings and the like, it did seem like the existing directors were not going to move on. So the chair who had chaired the company through all the circumstances leading up to the findings had felt that they could deal with whatever the problems were and move along. Actually, we had lots of members say, hey, I used to be proud to be a shareholder and say that I'm investing in Australian companies, even though, you know, we love banks because of their franking credits or people who love banks love their franking credits. And please don't shoot me on that one. We can talk about double taxation and funding your own retirement another time. But, you know, the company, until we went to them and said, you know, people used to be proud of being shareholders. They are not now. They are embarrassed you know, you need to do something. And that was when the organisation took it on themselves to make changes. And you can't just throw directors out. We had a lot of people at one of the AGMs wanting us to vote against all the directors. But for a bank, they actually have to have proper people in place. They can't just wing it and get three people off the street because every company has to have at least three directors. It would just be appalling. But in that circumstance too, everybody who was being elected was new and had joined the company after the Royal Commission because they put it in place to change the people at the top and to actually work on that. Unfortunately, that was followed by a year where they were flagged for failing Australian money laundering Austrac requirements where the suggestion was that they had facilitated payments to pedophiles in Philippines or potentially done that. And again, that engagement and really bringing home to the company that they weren't shrugging their shoulders, but they weren't making it better. They weren't fixing it, which I contrast to the likes of Commonwealth Bank where Catherine Livingston, who was chairing it then, she was so hands-on about the 700 things they had to fix, and that sounds like an exaggeration, but they actually listed them and then will come back and tell you how they're done, like basically ruled them off one by one and not in a you know, flippant, we're right, mate, way. These ones are going to be short-term. These ones are going to be long-term. This one we have to do this for. Really detailed lifting of everything in that company and 
there were really egregious behaviours revealed in the Financial Services Royal Commission, but there was a lot of system failures, a lot of, oh, this is going fine, we don't have to worry about it, and then when you examine it, it's like that has got an appalling outcome. So I think that that is an example of a company that was dealing with it itself, so Commonwealth Bank, but Westpac needed a bit of a nudge along and that they moved on it, but then they've had issues since then in actually nailing down all the things they need to implement. And then you mentioned AGL was a fascinating one because in our guidelines, we agree that a big shareholder can have a representation on the board in line with their shareholding. What we really don't want, though, is if you buy 20% of a company, we think if you want to control it, you really should pay for the rest of it. And of course, the share price will go up. So the shareholders that you buy out will get a better return. We don't think that you could buy 20% and then control the entire company. And that kind of goes also back to that idea that we're the smartest people in the room. You're lucky to be coming along this journey with us. You need to pay up if you want to control the company. So we had AGL, which had been quite disappointing on its climate readiness, its willingness to adopt targets in alignment with Paris, the nature of its investments and the like. It had been disappointing left, right and centre. And we had Mike Cannon-Brooks, who has an investment arm called Grok. They had bought through synthetic and real shares around 10 anywhere between 8 and 12%, depending on how you did the, the maths. And he had called them out that they needed to really address their climate goals. And they had to have a plan, they had to have an implementable plan, they had to have the closures. And to that end, he called out that it was really disappointing when they tried to split the company because there was no real improvement of the underlying business addressing the future and having a no carbon neutral future or pulling out carbon from the the economy. So he had put forward four independent directors as joining the board to improve matters. Where this is tricky is he only had, well, 12% of the company after he played around with his figures and we didn't want to hand over control. But what they did do well was they really looked into what does it make to be a an independent director and they chose directors who had independent backgrounds. They had all been either ASX listed. I'm not sure about the guy from Tesla, whether he was ASX listed or not, but really fantastic skills. Uh, Kerry Schott was an industry person. Skills and insight in this space in driving the company. And we, it was such a struggle because we had half our members saying, don't give control to this person, make him pay up. And they would even say they were disappointed where, where the company was at because they had been a laggard in addressing risks for the future. And then this other lot who were like, we need them to do something. You know, again, another company where they're embarrassed to have a holding. So we ended up interviewing each of those directors, which we've not done before, because usually when somebody appoints an external director, they don't have that strong independent credential and experience. Quite often they're an investment specialist or some other kind of specialist. Interviewing those people and deciding which way to vote was so, so hard. Just took a lot of thought and a lot of toing and froing. And with lots of governance, 
I know that we are reliant on people who having a reputation they care to lose, they care to keep, because basically all the rules in the world, I would not invest in a bad company. You know, Buffett says that bad managers and bad assets going together, different people keep their reputations. A company with poor management and poor ethics, just throw your money in the bin. Like, don't invest in a bad company unless somehow you can go in there and change it and build its governance. Being able to interview these people and make that decision, and we felt it was the appropriate decision, and the result since then has been on the improve. They didn't even have a permanent CEO when those four directors started. We'll be interested as to what goes down in the AGM this year, just because it's a year on. How have they been working together? You know, there's still people... Some things are a bit slow. They are working with the real world, though. So we don't want them to make aspirational goals that they won't implement. We don't want spin. We don't want greenwash. We want them to properly address all the concerns and have a plan and then implement it and report to us. I was actually going to say, so that was one of my questions that I had leading into today, which was this idea of greenwashing, which we've seen in so many different places, whether it's in Fund managers, if it's in products you see on the shelves when you go to the supermarket, you name it, there's probably some greenwashing that's taken place there. But we also, I think, can see this from companies where they kind of give us this sustainability spin, if you will. How do we as individual shareholders know if a company is trying to spin us something or if it's a legitimate type of target or even if it's realistic. I, I know you're not a scientist who's analyzing carbon emissions on the daily, but just generally as you're in your role, how can we take some of that on board? I think this is where you really do need to engage with the company and its disclosures. You need to be reading what they say. In terms of greenwashing, we are seeing the ACCC, so the Competition Authority, they are calling out misleading statements where people, where customers are misled. Because companies aren't allowed to lie about what they do in that regard. And then we're seeing ASIC, the Securities Investment Commission, they're pinging managed funds that have said that they're green and then perhaps they aren't. Yeah, I've seen that a lot recently. What you see is not what you get. It could just be a systemic failure where marketing goes, oh, that would sound a whole lot better here and nobody's pulled them up. So... I have a group of company monitors who are the ones who read the reports and meet with the companies and go to the AGMs. I've said I want them to read the sustainability reports as a retail shareholder. We're not going to be scientists. And I also call out that we're only at the start of the sustainability reporting. There's an international standard that's going to kick in from um, the financial year after the next one. And companies have been reporting through the what's called the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate Disclosures. And that's very much what it's going to look like in the future, that reporting. But you can see some really good examples of reporting in the big emitters like your BHP. You might not agree with the numbers they come out with and how that affects the future. But in terms of reporting, they're really high standard and they report across the globe to many different frameworks. So I think what you need to do is read it and give feedback. Read what the company's saying. Zero is another company that really 
just I talked to them, I think it was the year before last, when they did their first report and they'd been thinking, oh, we're fine because we're not a coal mine, but they use a lot of um, energy in the cloud-based stuff, but also they used to fly pre-COVID, used to fly everybody everywhere at the drop of a hat because engagement with customers is so important, was so important. Now we're all used to doing it online. So they had started that journey and amateur's the wrong word. They approached it in a very meaningful way, but know that they can't get to the perfect report in the first year. So it's going to be about building on this disclosures. If nobody reads the report, it's going to happen in a vacuum. Really helpful that regular shareholders who don't have a specialization read those reports, but also people who do have a specialization will be reading their reports. You know, read what the scientists say. Is it being made up? Generally, I find that companies that are very good at this information stuff, consistently good across whatever they do, if they're dodgy in one area, they're dodgy in another. <laughs> I actually, um, I've got to admit, when I first went down this this rabbit hole of sustainability reporting, which is probably three or four years ago now, I can't remember exactly when I started down this path. I remember coming away thinking, "Wow, the CB." I don't want to pump their tires too much, but I thought, "Wow, the CBA reporting on this was seemed to be really good to me." As did the reports from Cochlear. Uh, they were two companies that broke it out separately. They have a whole different portal on their website you can go to and you can look at the information. I thought that was really impressive. And then you're right, because then that seemed to ripple across into the other ways that they do disclosure and these types of things. There is something that I really want to talk to, which is this idea of the ASA making public, I think it's 28, yes, it's got 28 on my list here, of the different kind of like the key requirements that you set out for when you vote as the ASA. And this is available to anyone. And there are so many different things on here, but I thought maybe one of the things that was a really important thing because it expresses how similar it is between what we do as individual investors and the work the ASA does, or even just generally people that are good corporate stewards think about, which was this idea. And I think there was a quote that you had, I can't remember exactly where I've got it in my notes here, but one of them was effectively that the CEOs or the key management personnel and the board of directors should have adequate skin in the game. And by that, there are some kind of like defined lines of this. I remember when I was first looking at the Apple CEO, Tim Cook, the very first time I made my investment, he had 13 times his annual salary in shares. And obviously for Silicon Valley type companies, that wasn't a lot compared to the wealth of some of those investors. But I thought to myself, he would have to want to stuff up in order for him not to care about the share price of that company over the long term. So I'm curious, like maybe we can start there and the full link will be available in the show notes for anyone who wants to access this themselves and use it, which I highly recommend you do. How do you think about that? How do you think about skin in the game for those key management personnel or even the board of directors? Skin in the game is really tricky. And I think referencing the US is really helpful because they have a different taxation regime. Quite often those are attained in options and there's huge amounts of capital handed over. There does come a point where you might have so much skin in the game that it becomes in your interest to value the short term over the long term, depending on what's going on in your life and the industry. So our number is far more modest. It's one times the annual salary and all fees. So with directors, they don't get 
typically they don't get options, they shouldn't get options or performance rewards, they get paid a fee. And we want them over the period of three of five years to actually accrue equivalent amount of money in shares. So it's not hopefully at the end of a reasonable career, it's not like it's life changing, although we do encounter people who've run into divorces or work in the not for profit sector where giving away 30% of their fees, which of course are taxed each year to build up the shares can be quite difficult because of course we don't want them to sell them at an opportune moment either. We want them to, to hold that. So it's going to be easier for richer people. But the thing behind it is enough to make them aware of what is happening to the shareholders, like being in alignment with the experience, but not so much that it clouds their judgment and makes them act inappropriately. And there's typically a CEO with our remuneration structure, so their pay structures, they will accrue that if they're doing okay. If they're not getting their long-term award because the company's disappointing, it is difficult for them to get that exposure, but it's much easier for them than for a director who gets paid in cash and uh, has to pay tax on that cash. Absolutely. And I think anyone listening to this who is a long-term investor wants to see this type of mix, right? You want to see the basically the successful CEOs and key management personnel becoming more aligned as the thing grows and builds. And we can see that with some of those really long-tenured key management personnel who do incrementally earn into it, which is really important. I mean, there's a heap of things on this 28. Yeah, and they're really designed to help with our, our company monitors. They get to vote in the AGMs. So typically in an AGM, you get directors have to be voted in every three years and they get voted in first up the first year they're appointed and then every three years they have to be up for re-election and then it gets a little bit tricky because you have to have say there's no one who meets that criteria, one has to still be elected. So we'll have director elections. So that's some of the matters that we cover in those guidelines. The remuneration report and the awarding of equity. So with the remuneration, usually the long-term incentives are paid in shares of some type. So that has to go up for approval. There's actually, that's where quirks come in because if they buy the shares on market because they're not issuing new shares, They don't legally have to ask shareholders, can they do that? But it's good form and it allows shareholders to go, yep, that's fine, to actually say, put that on the notice of meeting as well. So we've got things about the structure of the pay because we want it to be long-term. We've had long history. We all remember people who brought in foreign managing directors who stayed for a minute, got paid lots of money to come in and even more to go in a year or two because they've failed. So we want to have proper hurdles. We want to have, we don't want you people to be paid because something went up in 12 months. We want them to be paid because of steady returns that have been communicated adequately over a longer term period because it's just making it up if you call it long term and it's short. So we've got stuff around the remuneration. We want a board is a group of individuals, but they act as a group, but they need individual skills. We need to have a board that's self-renewing. So the structure needs to be really mindful about what they do, how they do it, and they need to have a mixture of people who've been there for really long, which we consider 10 years, really short, three or six years. Mixture of people because when you first join a board, it's not like you know everything. The people who are in that sweet spot are the ones in the middle, three to six years. Then we worry about when you get to 10 years that you might have been too involved with everything and start thinking 
like the rest of the company and lose your independence. So we want a board that is structured well with good diversity, which means like mixture of males and females, different business backgrounds, different ages. We really want a group that is able to act better than all the individuals around the table. So that's one of the other things we put in that that list. And there's that temptation to have ticker box and that never works. So it's not just like you're out, you're out, you're out. Quite often companies will almost meet a few of them and then we have to make a judgment as to whether they're on balance for or on balance against. And quite often we'll, because we really don't have insight into the directors, we will hold off on choosing a vote until we've heard the director speak at the AGM because we'll be asking asking questions. So it might be about their past executive history or it might be about potential conflicts, you know, if they worked for the audit firm previously, that sort of thing. I've always heard the ASA ask those questions and I always just thought that they were not just kind of generic kind of questions, but I'd, I'd assumed that the ASA might have made up their mind before those questions come through. But Obviously, that's an important reason for the question and answer time, right? I suppose you know that if it goes one way, you'll vote one way. And if it goes the other way, you'll vote the other way. So while it's not a Dorothy Dixer, it, it's more like we really need you to commit to skin in the game. So skin in the game is a good ticker box example. Like I said, if you've had a not-for-profit career, you might not. And if you're a professional director and you have two directorships, Perhaps that's what pays your mortgage, if you're lucky to have one, pays for your divorce. But we would want those people to make an effort to buy shares, even if it ends up being a couple of thousand a year. We also have people come back to us and go, oh, we had lots of M&A and you can't buy shares as a director if you've got information that's not public. Although the place can, a lot of the companies now have a minimum shareholder requirement and what they can do is just systematise the acquisition of those shares. So they can say, we expect you to acquire shares over the year and we will buy every quarter, like whatever the price, we'll buy the amount. So you can get around that that inside information element by having a process. It's already set in advance. You just yeah. you have to buy. Yeah. So you might have covered this. Like obviously the real cash is important, but what about companies that extend loans to directors or to key management personnel? Because I guess the argument might be that it's still at risk, right? As long as it's like recourse to the individual, like it's still at risk. I understand that some of that was sponsored by the tax regime because. Mm. Tax has changed a bit since then, but in the olden days when you allocated the award, the tax became due because you've accrued it. So then there's all these structures that were set up. So a loan was one where you allocated the award, but there was a loan, so they kind of offset each other, so there was no gain. But some of those did end up being no recourse, and we do not like no recourse loans because it's like, yes, you get the shares if it goes well and there's no... And the company bears the downside. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's something that we were mindful of and we called out when it happens, but loans have fallen out of favour to some degree now. One of the points that the ISA likes to see, it says a five-year or more history of key financial metrics in the annual report. I must admit, I love seeing this as an analyst. It makes my life a little bit easier and it just gives the kind of bird's eye view over time of the business and what the management team think matters. How many 
companies, like are companies generally open to this? Like how many companies wouldn't do this? I feel like it's a... Some of it is a legal requirement because when you're putting out your remuneration report, you have to explain the metrics. Occasionally though, we have companies that either are recently joining the ASX 200 or a bit newer who kind of forget. So there are some items that should be there, but we want a more comprehensive list because we do think it's a good way to have a snapshot of the company over time. And because they're condensing all the figures into that 12-month period, but we are looking to the longer term as shareholders. You really do need a company, unless you're investing as a trader and you are going to be in and out, you want to see how it builds over time. And that's why we ask for those additional metrics. And I think a lot of people get frustrated because you might, back in the day when you had to print the annual report and send them, you knew that a lot of them were going straight in the bin. That doesn't mean there's not a cohort of people reading it. And back to that idea of keeping people honest, we do need some of the people to be reading it, whether it's online or in the hard copy. But there is a suggestion from a company that you've got all this information on your ASX announcements platform. But with shareholders, that is the only time someone said, okay, at this date, we and our external auditor agree that this is presenting everything in its entirety and, yeah, we've signed on the dotted line and we can be sued. Whereas when you're trying to put into context an announcement here and an announcement there, as a professional analyst, you're doing it all the time and it's easy. But if you're also trying to live your own life, it's very hard. Very hard to dip into all the announcements, especially if you also don't have that filter like when I read them, it's like, you know what a 3G is and a 4E and you know what you're looking for. But when you come to it anew, if you come to a company like Commonwealth Bank, which has dozens and dozens every hour of announcements, it is hard. So we do remind companies that people are looking at the annual report because that's like a snapshot at the time that they've agreed to. Whereas everything else, it's a bit like, vulnerable to the next thing. And that five-year history, I think, is part of that as well. I think this is such an important thing, and I'm so glad we've had this conversation today, Fiona, because so many people take for granted those kind of checks and balances that we have in place, and particularly in the modern era where everything seems to be just driven by low costs and ease of use, and people forget that that actually probably plays in line with your biases for being a long-term investor. Like, hold on a second, slow down. And actually think for a moment, like we've seen over many years, the average duration of share ownership gets shorter in line with the average tenure of companies inside indices and these types of things. Like all of these things are happening faster. And if you ask me, long-term investing is something that should be done slowly and with caution. Obviously, I'm fully aware of this. I've been very much fortunate to be working alongside the ASA with certain things, including coming to the events and the virtual events and these types of things. But if someone is listening to this right now and they're thinking, well, I've got a share portfolio and I do care about these things, how can they get either in contact with the ASA or how can they support the ASA, get the ASA to support them? Like, What can they do about it? Okay. So we obviously have a website. If you're on the podcast, you have the connections and you're going to have that link to it our little checklist, going to the australianshareholders.com.au website is one thing. You can contact the ASA at share at asa.asn.au and raise that. Maybe think about becoming a member. We are wanting to have like more diversity of members and what we really enjoy is 
having those people come to member meetings because the types of things I talk about, you know, we have a group of investors who've been there and seen that and they're happy to share their experiences. That can be helpful. And pop in an email what your concern is. One of the issues we do have, though, is a lot of people do get worried about their personal circumstances and quite often it can be they've lost money but there has been no wrongdoing. So just be aware, and I know a lot of people complain about ASIC not chasing people down, but they have to follow the law and be able to win a case. So in part, there might be some things we can't help you with, but there can be other things where we can explain what your avenue what your avenue is, it's just is a very small team, which is why I stand on the shoulders of the volunteer company monitors. And that's something too, that if you have an interest and you know how companies work, we always need new volunteers to do the company monitoring. For sure, for sure. That'd be great too. Yeah, the, um, if anyone listening to this, if you're an investor, you can afford the ASA membership fee. And so take part in it. The ASA is revamping the website. It's going to become a great thing as well over the next few months. So stay tuned and um, support the work of Fiona, her volunteers and the ASA team. And come along to an event. There's always some happening somewhere or company, oh, sorry, meetups in your state, maybe even in your town, a chance to learn. I really do appreciate this, Fiona. I really do appreciate you taking the time to chat with me for over 90 minutes on governance. You did say in the lead up to this that... Um, Shut me up. <laughs> yeah, but I have really enjoyed it because there's not many people I can speak to in Australia, honestly, that I can sit down with and I can talk about the things that are probably going to become really enduring in our country as we move forward and globally. Like the way the industry, the finance and investment industry is shifting so dramatically, it's giving rise to really unique problems. And maybe it's just me with recency bias, but I think finally some people are waking up to corporate governance and the importance of it as more investors become self-directed, whatever way that happens to be. They're more interested in things like climate, sustainability, ethics, these types of things. And I think this is um, where it all kind of focuses in on. So I'm glad that we could have such an insightful chat. So Thanks once again for taking the time to join me on the show. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it, Owen. We can do it again next year. Great. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.